Welcome, everybody, to episode 35 of The Hopeful Majority. Today, we've got on a guest, Stephen Alakara. He built a big nonprofit organization called the Future Caucus, formerly known as the Millennial Action Project, where he brought together bipartisan state legislatures across the country. He then ran for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin. Yes, U.S. Senate. And now he's building an organization called Bridge Entertainment Labs, where he's trying to bring culture to bridge our political divides. Fascinating stuff. And the question that we're going to answer, well, how do you bring people together without actually telling them that you're bringing them together? You'll be curious as to why we're asking this question, because in some ways, the topic of this episode is how do we make bridge building, the hopeful majority, these types of things culturally relevant. Remember, every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, this platform is here for open-minded conversation between people of amazingly different, interesting viewpoints. I appreciate you listening. Let's get into the monologue, and then we're going to hear from Stephen. All right, let me ask you a question. What does Taylor Swift the TV show Yellowstone, and getting money out of politics all have in common. They bring people together across political differences. Taylor Swift, have you ever seen his Twifty? Are they Democrat? Are they Republican? There's no way to tell. They're all in a Taylor Swift. When a Taylor Swift concert happens, thousands of people descend on a town, book up all the hotels, and there's no dog in politics. It's all about Taylor Swift. It's about building an identity that's bigger than our parties. The TV show Yellowstone, it's set in Montana. It's about ranch life. And I've never seen the show that's allowed elite San Franciscan liberals to understand conservative Montana ranching culture. Brings people together. Money out of politics. Stephen's going to talk about this a little bit in the interview and the conversation, but when he was running for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, one of the things he talks about is that he would meet conservative veterans he would meet liberal people at bars. And the one commonality that I found through all of them was that they cared about restoring trust and reducing the influence of money in our politics. Why did I start the show with Yellowstone, Taylor Swift, and money out of politics? Well, it's because in some ways, these three entities are bringing people together without telling them that they're being brought together. It's like trying to feed broccoli to me, a vegetarian who, eats, who hates vegetables, and getting me to eat it. And not only getting me to eat it, but love it. The fact is that we need to start being creative about how we build this coalition of the hopeful majority of people of different ideas, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. We need to be creative in thinking about how to push messages of unity, of understanding, of common agreement at a time of incredible division. Because if we aren't creative in the way in which we do that, then we might lose the cultural battle. It might not be interesting. How do we popularize? How do we make it socially advantageous for somebody to build bridges across difference? Because right now, if you're in Hollywood or you're in industry, there's a lot of money in dividing people. There's not a lot of money in bringing people together. If you're in politics, there's a lot of votes in dividing people. There's not a lot of votes in bringing people together. The incentive structures are all created in ways in which we incentivize splitting people apart. If you go to past episodes, and I know you know this better than I do in some ways, when you're listening to this conversation, you'll see echoes of past conversations where we talk about the outrage industrial complex, where we talk about the fact that we, on social media, incentivize algorithms. Well, in this case, what we're going to talk about is culture. And Stephen has a really fascinating perspective because we talk about culture from multiple angles. He ran for U.S. Senate in Wisconsin. He built a nonprofit organization where he brought people of different backgrounds and state legislatures together to solve problems. And now he's trying to bring that perspective into how you make bridge building culturally relevant. See what I just did there? Bridge building culturally relevant. How do we win the air game? The way I think about a lot of this work is that we live at this moment in this country's history where when you talk to individuals, you'll find a lot of common ground. You'll find a lot of common understanding. And yet, when you go out there and you watch the news, it sounds like the world's on fire. How do you bridge the gap between narrative and reality? That's what we talk about in this show today because Stephen's got a really interesting perspective on a lot of this. And I know you do as well because when you go out there on social media and you say, hey, let's bring a bunch of people together. I know what you immediately get responded with. Oh, that's some kumbaya BS. You know, that's some let's all hold hands and come together. And yet, 
a lot of powerful social movements in the past and today, whether it's the environmental movement, it's the civil rights movement, it's criminal justice reform, it's the conservative movement, liberal movement, a lot of movements have figured out how to push their message in a way that is culturally appealing. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm incredibly excited for this conversation. Remember, all your feedback is welcome. So let's hear from Stephen Alicara. Stephen Alicara, welcome to the Hopeful Majority. Hey, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Did you did you see how I said Stephen Alicara, the full name, you know, to to really to really give the audience a full appreciation for who has arrived in the podcast? <laughs> this is very formal, and uh, I feel like I should be wearing a jacket on top of the shirt right now. I know. Well, as everybody knows, the people that are just listening on on uh, Apple and Spotify, but don't get to actually see the full video recording, um, they don't get to see the the very formal collared shirt that you've got on, and and you're only <laughs> you're only slightly less formal than our last Indian that was on the podcast, who was Vivek Ramaswamy. <laughs> well, um, let's just hope I don't take style cues from him. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm glad we're, we're already bridging a lot of divides. So look, you know, when, when I was thinking about starting the conversation, I know that some people might already know you and they might know you as a Senate candidate and they might know you as the CEO of, of the Future Caucus or Millennial Action Project, now known as the Future Caucus and founder. Um, and they've got a lot of different associations. Some folks might not know you. And I was thinking, you know, where should we start this conversation? And the last time you and I caught up on the phone, you mentioned that you were just leaving the Sundance Festival. Yeah. Why were you at just at the, the Sundance Film Festival? Well, Sundance has been on my radar for many years, but now I'm actually in a job in the entertainment industry where it makes sense to be there. So Sundance, as many people know, is one of, if not the top film festival in America. And in my new adventure as the president of Bridge Entertainment Labs, which is elevating the ethos of bridge building through the power of TV and film and other forms of entertainment media, we had a great opportunity to uh, speak at Sundance at, in a few different events. And Sundance is a great convening of filmmakers, creatives, industry leaders in Hollywood and we weren't sure what the response was going to be uh, to this mission, to this message. There's a lot of fear that needs to be overcome in the world of uh, entertainment and film. And I was really blown away by just how excited people were about the mission. It definitely resonated. A lot of people want to get involved. And that's what our organization is all about, is helping to channel that, that energy. And um, one of the panels was about environmental storytelling we were partnering with the redford center and how okay. environmental storytelling can incorporate more of a bridge building ethos because as we all know it's extremely important that we build diverse coalitions to pass environmental legislation that it, we're not just preaching to mm -hmm. the choir but we're reaching beyond and engaging diverse audiences and so that was a great piece of uh discussion during that panel and uh again i was really uh, really quite pleased, quite pleasantly surprised that uh, that it landed the way it did. So we, we've already got into the environment stuff. And, and honestly, I'm going to ask you questions. And I'm curious about how you think bridging can be applied to a lot of these issue areas, especially when you're running your Senate campaign. But yeah. before we go there, you mentioned this mission. Now, the podcast called The Hopeful Majority. And a lot of the people that show up here are folks that are open minded, they're curious, or they're really passionate about their beliefs, but they they hate the fact that our media has become so outraged. But we we necessarily don't have an agreed upon mission yet. So when you say this mission, what is that mm -hmm. to you? And and what is this thing called the Bridge Entertainment Labs that, that you brought up? Yes, well, I, as you know, through my prior adventures, uh, leading Future Caucus and the Senate campaign and being in the bridge building and democracy sector for sure. many years, I always believed that we needed to articulate a more compelling vision for bridge building for the country. Mm. And secondly, bring that ethos more into the culture. And so when I talk about a more compelling vision for bridge building, it's not about finding some kind of least common denominator, this what I call the transactional form of bridge building. Uh, some people in Washington would call it bipartisanship, where you have an A position and a B position and you divide by two. And I've always actively rebelled against uh, that narrative, mainly because I was called to enter the space for the first place, coming from a musical background, uh, mm. not just playing in jazz groups, but rock bands and every kind of 
genre. Was he? You played a trumpet, right? Or you played a bunch of things. Yeah, I played guitar and drums and sing and play the bass and uh, played in a lot of different bands growing up in Wisconsin. And through that experience, I saw the power of this more creative form of bridge building where in a jazz combo, for example, it's not about checking your principles or a piece of your identity at the door. It's inviting your full life story and lived experience to the conversation. That's really what builds a strong foundation for bridge building. And mm-hmm. so that's the spirit, this jazz process that I brought to politics and bridging young legislators across the aisle. And to me, that's more of an evolutionary approach as, a, as opposed to a transactional one. Or mm-hmm. another metaphor that I use is it's not about meeting on the 50-yard line. It's about meeting on a new playing field altogether. And that only happens from being a great listener, from having this kind of call and response, which is a jazz term, but also I think a pro-democracy term as well, and being fully present in conversations. So that, mm-hmm. I think, is the vision of bridge building that I think I and, and a number of others have been advocating for. And secondly, to get this into the culture, through Millennial Action Project Now Future Caucus, there were so many pioneering pieces of legislation that our coalitions of legislators were a part of, whether that's on gun violence prevention or gerrymandering reform or clean energy. And it occurred to me, as it sounds like many of your listeners have found, is that the media is fun- structurally broken right yeah. now in terms of elevating new narratives that can paint a brighter picture of what our diverse democracy can look like in the future. And one of the biggest levers for affecting culture change is entertainment Mm. media. One of the most powerful ways of reaching people at the heart level is storytelling. And that's what Bridge Entertainment Labs is all about. So before we go to the future caucus and your work on the bipartisan landscape, and when we think about the Senate campaign, question I want to ask you before we even get to all of that is, what what do you define as bridge building? You mentioned what it is not, right? It's not yeah. this A plus B divided by two compromise. It's not necessarily this like vanilla form of engagement. And something that honestly I've always wanted your perspective on, just given a lot of the amazing work you've done in this space, is what does Stephen think about bridge building? So yeah. w- what what would you define as bridge building? What does it mean to you? Well, first of all, I'm one of the reasons I'm I'm thrilled that you are a leader in this space and I've I've really enjoyed getting to know you is I think you've had this open-minded approach to not just bridge building, but all of a lot of diverse perspectives coming together in our democracy. And that's really the spirit that I I believe in. Um I define bridge building as an ethos where you listen start to empathize and humanize with people across lines of different people who come from different communities than your own and uh, seek to build something together. Mm-hmm. And that process is deeply personal for me because I grew up in Wisconsin in suburban Milwaukee in a town where a lot of people did not look like me or share my background. My parents are uh, sh- sh- uh this is going to be a shocking revelation on this podcast. My parents are immigrants from India. Oh my God, you're Indian? <laughs> what, what what was the town called, by the way, that you lived in? What was yeah, it's a town like? called Brookfield, Wisconsin. Okay. And um, at the time, it was about 98% white, mm-hmm. and it's diversified a little bit since then. And I remember thinking early on in grade school that there were one of two pathways I could go on. One is a path of isolation where I'd basically be an outcast, hang with the very small number of people in our community who looked like me. And the other path was to build community and to relate across our lines of difference. And I truly feel like music had Mm -hmm. such a profound impact on me because it allowed me to build community. It allowed me to bridge a lot of these divides in the greater Milwaukee area, which are deep and stark racially and politically music i saw was bridging and bringing these different communities together across race across many lines of difference that wouldn't otherwise come together and my bands were like a motley crew of people from across those divisions and so naturally our audiences were very eclectic and when we would perform music on different sides of these divides i noticed that people were trying to place us in a certain box And 
the and it was hard is, to place you. Yeah, exactly. It was hard to box us in. And so I, I really enjoyed this whole idea of building community and and building things together. And, and that's really where this idea came so, from. So uh, again, I, I feel like every time you've got a response, I have like this plan of where to take the conversation. <laughs> and then I sort of throw it away because I, I mean, your background in music is really interesting. Like you brought up this fact that you're in this, you're in the suburb, what was it called? Brookfield? That's right. right. Which I I asked the name as if I would just know where the, what this was. And so but let's just, you know, Brookfield, Wisconsin, you're growing up, you've got Indian immigrant parents, um, which is an experience I can certainly relate to. And you stumble upon music and you see this as like this incredible avenue of reaching across the divide. And, and what's interesting about that story is in some ways, you've almost articulated bridge building without even using the words bridging, right? Yeah. Which is that you saw music as an instrument for that. Is there something that you saw in the process of music where people that you thought normally would not see across the divides in your town, right? Or as you were growing up, was there something about music that allowed you to facilitate and bridge those divides? Well, I mean, music is the universal language at the end of the day. I mean, you can, I've, I've, I've communicated with people who don't speak any English and we've communicated through music. I think another reason is that music is a very emotional, personal, and even spiritual experience for people. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go to a concert and you see people dancing, it's like sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, you might think that someone is possessed, but they're possessed by the energy of, of the moment. Right. And so I think because of that, you know, you're connecting on a very deeper level. And I think through the songs that I've written over the years, sometimes I've been able to express ideas and feelings through that, that mm -hmm. maybe uh, are harder to express verbally or our media infrastructure hasn't created a space for that conversation. So I think that's one thing, like if you're playing rock and roll or you're playing jazz or you're playing hip hop, you know, those are genres that really I think are, inviting and bring a lot of people together and um you know and at the end of the day good music is good music and so um you know i think that when we would play these shows across you know greater milwaukee um you know if we're playing well we're just going to have a bigger audience yeah and um and and i do think a key part of that was the const the the composition of our bands themselves and that comes from building friendships and relationships across lines of difference that allow that to happen in the first place. And I think that open-minded spirit, the independent-minded spirit was definitely uh, present in, in my bands. So what's interesting is that I was, um, I, I'm sure you know Monica Guzman, yeah. and uh, I'm sure others have, have heard of her that are listening to the show. Uh, Monica is a podcast called The Braver Way, and one of the things she asked us to bring to this conversation was, you know, think about a cultural reference that you find that gives you hope about bridging. And I brought Taylor Swift concerts. And yeah. what's interesting about Taylor Swift concerts is that you're listening to the music you're listening to the, and you're, you show up to this auditorium, everybody, as you said, looks possessed. Um, and, and, and nobody's thinking about, you know, whether you voted for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, nobody at a Taylor Swift concert is thinking about whether or not you think about this or that on the border, what they're like, oh my God, there's great music and that's what I'm listening to and looking at. And that to me makes me understand and think through like how are, how can we generate more experiences in society where people don't immediately go to each other's politics, right? They don't immediately, right. go, but they think about something bigger, right? And, and through Bridge Entertainment Labs, you're looking at culture, you're looking at film, you're looking at industry. Do you think that there's potential in using these alternative assets in society that are not political as a way to bring people together? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the trends over the last 30 years is that we've had fewer and fewer of these common cultural references. When you have media, both news and entertainment media, becoming increasingly polarized, you have, look, right now, there is even late night TV exists uh, across this uh, or has been divided along political lines. You have your liberal late night TV shows like Stephen Colbert and, and others. And now you have your new late night TV on the conservative side with Greg Gutfeld on, mm -hmm. on Fox news. And so just as an example, you know, how we're kind of existing in these separate echo chambers. And so that's why I think you're exactly right that we have, 
art and, and music and culture that truly can cut across this divide. And many creatives were, you know, I've spoken to in entertainment, sometimes they write off the possibility of that. And it's just this. Why do you think yeah. they write it off? Well, I think they consume uh, headlines from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And uh, and if that's your only source of news, then you, you really start to uh, question whether it's possible to appeal across the political divide because your people are speaking different languages in many cases, like, you know, speaking uh, to different pieces of culture. And so there's this feeling of resignation. And as a result, it's like fighting this war of attrition in terms of viewership, which is, I don't think a great thing. We try and reframe the conversation and say, Hey, why don't you unlock these new audiences? And, and it's possible. I mean, there's shows like, Ted Lasso and, and Yellowstone that have been able to uh, truly appeal across the divide and, and music. Taylor Swift has, if you look at the data on her viewership or her, um, her listenership, it is, she's like smack dab in the middle in terms of being able to appeal to left and, and right. Mm -hmm. And that's really powerful. And so I think when you can relate to something in common that invites a deeper conversation about other issues where you might have disagreements. Man, Stevie, don't give me another don't give me another reason to have to like Taylor Swift, man. <laughs> I I would I would say, you know, you know, brother, like what's interesting about your work, right? Is you mentioned things like Yellowstone. You mentioned things like a Taylor Swift concert. You mentioned, you know, Ted Lasso. Uh, you've got this interesting music background and it it's fascinating because when people think about and hear bridging, they assume that it's got to be some like political activity that you have to do. And yet you're, you're, you're talking about cultural touchstones that have nothing to do with politics and then bringing them in. So what I'm curious about is, is there something about a show like Yellowstone, right? Or is there something about a show like Ted Lasso um, or somebody like Taylor Swift that makes them that has unique and specific characteristics that allow them to reach across the divide and to allow people that would, you know, somebody in San Francisco never understand the lifestyle of somebody in Montana and yet watch the show Yellowstone. And suddenly they're like, okay, let me give that person a shot. Yeah. Well, I think the first piece of that is, is not pushing people away by dehumanizing stereotypes and, um, you know, if you look at the, you know, late night uh, lineup right now, you know, most of the monologues are really political and they are uh, one sided. I would say I don't think I'm making any news here by saying that. Are you it, saying Jimmy Kimmel's one sided? <laughs> well, I guess I would what say what side I, is he? <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, I should say I have friends who work on all of these shows. So I, I love okay. all the people involved. For the record, Stephen loves everybody. Yeah, exactly. Just make sure that is the tweet coming from uh, this podcast. Steven loves everyone. Well, that's part of the problem. Everybody thinks that bridge builders are people that have to that have to like everybody. So you're only reifying the stereotype. No, you're exactly right. I look when we were building Millennial Action Project, now Future yeah. Caucus, that that was the beginning. I would say of this modern iteration of the bridging divide space, and there was this negative stereotype that there are no principles. You don't actually have views on anything. And mm -hmm. so every time I would show up in a public place on a panel or event, I would take it as a point of pride that I could be really specific about issues and model our ethos on just about every issue you could talk about and come out with um, more creative, innovative, forward-looking solutions that are really the best ideas that we've come across as opposed to the least common denominator. So that is, you know, that's something that's really important. And, and so to get back to your, your original question, I think that it's not about these dehumanizing narratives, which happen not due to malicious intent. Often, I think it's more due to um, what is your media diet? Who's in your friend circle? What perspectives are you hearing? And if you are living in an echo chamber, your view that the other side is evil and hateful is only going to increase. And the latest data on this shows that over two thirds of Americans see the other political side as being evil. And yeah. so it makes it really hard to tell a unifying story because of that. I do think some of the shows that get it right clearly have more diverse writers rooms. I think that they have experiences where they're drawing from say the middle part of the country, my home state of Wisconsin, and they're able to, um, 
not create a caricature, but draw from real experience. And that, 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 that makes a difference. So you mentioned potentially having creative rooms and, and writers rooms that are more diverse from an ideological and geographic standpoint. If you were talking to Hollywood right now, what would your recommendation be to them for helping to bridge the divide in the country? Exactly that. I think it's, it's first work with groups like ours uh, who have really practice the art of bridge building. And as you know, I've been in this space for over a decade and, you know, bridge building as one of my mentors likes to say is not rocket science. It's much harder than that. And so uh, if you're a creative jumping into the space, uh, know that not only starting with an open mind is really important, but bring in people who have exercise that muscle of bridge building and can introduce different narratives and storylines that haven't been told. One reason why I jumped into the culture change arena is because I've been on this journey. I've seen, I saw things during the Senate campaign, for example, mm -hmm. where there's so much beauty happening in our local communities and on the ground. And we're not choosing to tell those stories. And sometimes there's this gap of believing whether or not those stories exist. Well, I've seen them. That's why I believe them. And now we need to get those on some of the biggest platforms in America. Yeah. I think what's what's so interesting about the notion that there are these platforms that actually exist and that Hollywoods and creatives can do a lot to push a lot of this work is that oftentimes I hear that a lot of these, these folks will say, well, do you want me to support a candidate? Do you want me to fund a specific campaign? Is Am I supposed to run an ad for a candidate? And essentially what you're saying is, no, it's about figuring out how to integrate this ethos into bridging. Right. Are there other movements or other social causes that people that are interested in bridge building can take lessons from in terms of how they started advancing their cause through entertainment, through culture? Are there, are there other avenues of, of learning and approach? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, whether you look at um, LGBT rights, you look at the environment, you look at criminal justice reform, mm -hmm. uh, as uh, one of my friends, Van Jones, likes to say, culture always wins. And yeah. so if you look at how these issues have evolved, it's because those issues were really in the culture with LGBT rights. It shows like will and grace that help to normalize um, uh, same sex relationships in our country. Um with criminal justice reform, you have artists like Jay-Z, um, Meek Mills, and others getting involved. This film that came out, that Millennial Action Project, now Future Caucus, yeah. I'm still getting used to that, was involved in partnering with called Just Mercy, which was featuring Michael B. Jordan and uh, about the real-life story of Brian Stevenson. You know, films like that help to get criminal justice reform into the culture. And you look, the First Step Act passed. Uh, um uh, and, and you have other, um, mm -hmm. criminal justice reforms that our organization was on the front lines at the state level as well. Um, and then the environment, there's a whole infrastructure of environmental groups that, um, that work to integrate those themes into, into culture and film. And so I think that mm -hmm. idea of culture always wins is very important. And one line that helped define my evolution into this space is the idea that culture precedes politics, or in other words, political change happens downstream from culture change. And if you can change the culture, it changes the realm of what's possible politically. Do you think there, who do you think at this moment is best at manipulating culture for their political gain? Do you think there are certain groups? Do you think that there are certain people that we can look to as of now and manipulating, I think almost paints it as a negative light. Right. But from your experience, are there folks that you see right now doing a really good job of using cultures and mechanism to advance their cause? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, that's a good question. And you mean politically or, or, in, uh, I think, I think primarily politically, like, like yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you where this is coming from. Yeah, for me. Yeah. We were talking about this on the phone the other day, you know, the, I think the Daily Wire, you know, and and a lot of conservative groups, people like Ben Shapiro, I think really effectively understand they've got to win the cultural battle to start driving change. And so that that's sort of what I'm thinking about is is who's doing it well right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the Daily Wire is a good interesting example. I've done these debates with Ben Shapiro 
representing the right and Cenk Uger representing the left with the Young Turks. And and I got to give you another piece of credit. You know where else I saw you show up on a debate recently on my recommended feed on YouTube? Where? I saw I saw you moderating uh, a debate. I think it was between Charlie Kirk yeah. uh, at Politicon or it was it was it was it was two yeah. very prominent people. It wasn't the Ben Shapiro one. Yeah, but, uh, but, Charlie yeah. Kirk and Hassan Piker probably. Yes. So this yes. just showed up on your YouTube. Uh, it, it literally showed. It showed up on, on I think a YouTube channel called like Charlie Kirk's War Room or something like that. <laughs> so, I, I'm I'm telling you, man, you're you're going places with this. Well, um, as a debate moderator, put me in. I I enjoy it. And with those, I learned a lot through those debates. Uh, so this was a conference called Politicon, uh-huh. and one thing that was really great about it is it really made this spirit of debate and different views converging on a single stage as fun and entertaining. And, you know, one thing that people should know is that behind the scenes, the speakers were very cordial, uh, what, you know, looking up photos of each other's kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the audience definitely was looking for blood and, and they wanted to put on a show and I saw Tucker Carlson recently posted the debate that I, I hosted with him and and Cenk Uger. Okay. And these videos have gone viral. There are millions of views online. And so I, I actually think that, you know, showing that we can show up on a stage together and making and make it fun um, is really important. But to your point about. Yeah, go ahead. Well, can I can I pause you right there? So yeah. I know this sounds like a little bit of a tangent, but I think it'd be really relevant for the audience to hear what was the most difficult thing about moderating a conversation with Tucker Carlson and Chank Uger and, and Charlie Kirk and Hassan Piker, like what, what was the most difficult part of that? And, and what did you find was relatively simple or something that you found was surprising moderating those conversations? Well, um, I guess I'll, I'll start with the second one because a story comes to mind. So I talk about um, this dichotomy between the green room versus the stage uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, you know, the debate with Jen Uger and Ben Shapiro truly was like a welcome to the Thunderdome kind of moment. Like we were stepping into a WWE match and, uh-huh. and all the other debates you mentioned were like that too, but it really was with the spirit of, of fun too. And, and I, again, the, the level of cord, 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 being cordial and, um, just wanting to learn about each other's families behind the scenes was was really striking and and so i just think that you know and and the speakers themselves were extremely aware of that dynamic as well uh so just going from behind the scenes where Mm. we're all loving each other basically and then going to the stage where it's like get ready for a wwe match um really was striking but honestly wasn't too surprising because if you're trying to make a name for yourself as an online sort of political thought leader, like that's basically the game you got to play. Um, the thing that was most challenging is because the entire business model is to get a clip online that goes viral. There's this constant state of sort of who can be more aggressive basically. And so it can be tough to kind of connect the dots and what people are saying. I do think sometimes it's more constructive to just, set it up as let's have a fireside chat. Let's have a conversation and go back mm-hmm. and forth. Uh, when you're trying to basically verbally slam the other person, it's hard to kind of get a, a word in on, Hey, this is where, you know, you might find some areas of connection. And the one with Jenky uh, and Tucker Carlson in particular, if you watch that video online, um, there was actually a lot of common ground in a, uh, in sort of holding to account, uh, major corporations that are uh, undermining the livelihoods of middle class Americans and and Americans at the lower yeah. end of the income spectrum. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting, and I apologize if 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 we may have lost you for a little bit in terms of crackling. It's just the it's just the partisan industrial complex coming after you. They just don't want you to succeed. Yeah. You know, it's it's it's. Uh, so I apologize if if anybody misheard, but we're we're continuing on in terms of the recording. A question that I have when you talk about these people and you talk about the incentive structure that they walk in and it's a thunderdome it's the wwe ring this is something i've always wanted to ask you when you actually started running for senate and it's a broader question i always have um around this outrage industrial complex and it goes to the question of incentives right which is 
that are we truly incentivizing this ethos of bridge building in society? And do you see culture almost as a lever and an incentive structure to start getting people to think about bridging, that maybe it is a culturally relevant thing, or that maybe it is to your social advantage to actually be a builder as opposed to a destroyer? What do you think is the role that incentives play in all of this? It's it's a huge role. I mean, and and I think you're exactly right to point to not just the political incentives, which we should talk about, but also the cultural incentives as well. Hmm. And this is where I think there's a huge opportunity because when I give talks around the country, I usually ask this basic question at the top, which is who here has had a challenge bridging a political divide with their friend circle or within their own family? Well, everyone raises their hand, right? And so this question of how you can sort of reconcile and and have a productive conversation with people in your own orbit is on the minds of a lot of people. So I think there's an incentive to learn and figure out a positive way of doing it. And I do think it's important to have these cultural incentives to encourage people to do so and, and know that it's not, I think we need to reframe this whole conversation from, you know, it's like something that's either um, impossible to do, to be in the same room with someone who's politically different than you. Uh, this idea that you're giving up a piece of yourself by having a conversation with someone and um, and it's like a real drag to do it. I mean, it's just generally framed as a negative, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think I'm sure. And you not know. only is a not only is a negative, but it it's framed as it's a miserable process. Like who yeah. actually wants to undertake it? It's a real drag. Yeah, who would want to do this? And I think that you know, an ethos that you and I share is that we feel like our lives are enriched by having these conversations. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, uh, but we ultimately feel like we can learn something new. You might have the chance to heal a broken relationship in your personal life or with your family, and that's really important. Um, so there are a lot of benefits to doing this, and I think that message doesn't really get out there. So that I think we need cultural incentives and sort of social cues. It's like a permission structure that needs to be out there, and that's really important. But we cannot you know, tie the bow on this conversation without talking about the political incentives as well. Sure. And you referenced my, you know, my Senate campaign, I ran on changing the system. And the number one issue there was money in politics that I talked about, because if it's financially profitable to be dividing our country, most politicians are going to do it. Not all. There are a courageous few who challenge the system. And I've worked with most of them <laughs> over mm-hmm. the last decade. Um, but you can't expect most politicians to cut against the grain if it's going to commit political suicide for them. And that's mm-hmm. where we got to change how money flows in the system. So it's more about getting stuff done as opposed to polarizing America. Well, I was actually, I was going to go exactly in this direction, which is to ask you about some of the political incentive structures that you ran into while running for Senate. And you mentioned money in politics. And it's interesting uh, when we had our presidential candidate series last year, almost every one of them brought up the fact that fundraising is a huge impact and it plays a huge role in terms of how they think. In fact, in some ways, like the only reason why Nikki Haley's campaign is alive right now is because there's billionaires be able to prop it up. Exactly. So what about money in politics would you specifically change? Like what, if you got to wave your magic wand, what would that mean? And what would that look like? Well, I would do three things. One is when you're campaigning, the way it's set up right now is media journalists will basically look at who's raised the most amount of money and present candidate viability in that order. So mm-hmm. money is literally the only thing that matters in terms of it's like it's a metric. It's a metric. And and when you increasingly have these media deserts where journalists aren't actually in the field and going to campaign events, in our case, we had one statewide print journalist covering the campaign. And that guy, frankly, uh, did not take the time to go into the field. The only journalism you do is sitting at your computer and reading the fundraising reports. So yes, it is a, a convenient metric to use. And so I think if you could change that system to one similar to what they have in the state of Connecticut, mm-hmm. where you crowdfund small donations to reach a certain threshold of viability from your community, 
then you get a competitive grant from the government to run a real campaign, then that means it's not about spending all of your time fundraising. It's about trying to be the best candidate. And then it levels the playing field. And who is actually a great candidate becomes much more important than who is the best telemarketer. So that's one. The second one deals with once you do get elected, which is right now a more accurate picture of what goes on in Washington is you have members of Congress who spend most of their time out of the office raising money across the street at their party headquarters. And meanwhile, you have lobbyists coming in and handing over legislative text to overworked 20-something staffers and saying, hey, I want you to put this legislation in. Hmm. And, and that's happening right now. And so I have called for banning lobbyist contributions from members of Congress because it equates to legalized bribery. I mean, hmm. they're, they're giving money with the idea that you're more likely to move their agenda. That is what bribery is. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying, you know, to lobbyists out there, I'm not trying to come for your jobs. It just means yeah. that money can't be one of the tools uh, you're using. To exercise. And, yeah, to exercise your influence. Exactly. Um, and then the final piece I'll just briefly point to is um, how time is allocated. You know, again, I've, I've talked about how candidates and members of Congress are spending most of their time uh, raising money. And one way that we can help solve that problem for people who are in office is to ban fundraising while Congress is in session. So in other words, while you're elected to do the job of governing, you're spending your time governing. Hmm. Let me just put this in, in a way that I think people outside of politics can understand. Imagine that you're a bartender and you are hired to serve drinks to people and you go to the manager of that bar and you say, can you pay my salary while I don't do this job anymore? I, I, I don't think that conversation is going to go very well. It's, and, and that's what's happening in politics right now. We, the taxpayers, are paying them to do the job. And they're literally neglecting their jobs and not doing it. And they expect us to keep paying their salaries. So I want to change that piece as well. Well, I'm you know, if you're if you're new to the show and you're listening to this right now and you're like, Manu, I want you to ask more questions about the policy proposal that Stephen just put into play. One of the things that I always like to do is I like to leave what you've just said there. And I would love for the audience's feedback on this. We do this every time we get into some policy specifics. But there's one thing I would pick up on all of this, which is that, again, it keeps going back to this notion that let's say you are that bartender, right? And now suddenly you're incentivized to not even be at your job but you're getting paid for your job. It goes to this general field that I think a lot of people in America have right now, which is, are leaders actually even working for me, right? Or are they working exactly. for interests, you know, whether it's the right, the left, it doesn't matter. This seems to be one of the issues that spans party and political preferences. And when you ran for Senate, did you find that there was a coalition that was relatively bipartisan or multipartisan behind a lot of the stuff that you just talked about? Yes. This issue of how we make our political system more worthy of our trust and money and changing money in the system is a huge part of that was the most electrifying and unifying issue on the campaign trail. We would often have these sort of cattle call style events where all the main candidates would come and speak. And when I got to this issue about addressing the money in politics, getting the corruption out, getting uh, real workers into the system, people who do their jobs, that easily got the biggest applause. And this is really important for the democracy community because there has been this notion that talking about reform issues are so-called process issues and therefore not sexy and you can't galvanize a coalition around it. Mm -hmm. That is fundamentally wrong. The people who are saying that probably aren't great communicators, <laughs> but I can tell you that this is an issue that gets at the core of it. And I'll give an example. We went up to do uh, an event in uh, North Central Wisconsin called Nielsville, and mm -hmm. we're speaking at a veterans uh, memorial on Veterans Day. And we ran the style of campaign where we're inviting everyone and reaching out to everyone. We went to blue, red and purple counties. Well, this was a red county. It, 
voted for Trump by maybe 30 points. And we show up to this veterans memorial. We see the group of people there. And just as we're about to park, I lean over to my campaign manager and I go, you know, I'm just going to guess here that no one here is a Democrat. And we were right. And we go in, we do the stump speech. I talk a little bit about the bipartisan veterans legislation uh, that I've had Mm -hmm. the chance to work on over the years, as well as this deeper issue that you're speaking about with trust. And by the end of the event, we notice something has happened here. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have countless people coming up and wanting to sign up to volunteer who want to join our list, who want to... donate to the campaign or be involved in some way thinking this is interesting. And I I'm also thinking like, this is such a moment to really ask deeper questions about what's going on. And so the next time a woman came up to me, I I asked her what's really going on here. Was there something that really connected in the message? And I mean, clearly like we're getting surrounded by people who want to be involved. What's really happening here. And what she said has stuck with me to this day. She said, Mm -hmm. She said, Stephen, um, we have been so conditioned not to trust our politicians. And I can tell that you're speaking from the heart and that I can trust you. And that is deeper than partisan politics or what party mm-hmm. you're with. And so the idea of can we trust our leaders again is the fundamental issue here. And it's something that really warmed my heart to see on the campaign trail that we were able to build this coalition of what some people call the exhausted majority, what you might call the hopeful majority, a cross-partisan coalition of people who are not just in the political middle, who are libertarians, who people who formerly voted for Trump, who voted for Obama. It's across the spectrum of people who want to elect people they can trust and believe in and vote for a new political system that they can believe in that delivers results for them. That to me was so encouraging. And I heard that kind of story all across the state of Wisconsin. And so then the question became who here in media is taking the time to drive out to Nielsville, Wisconsin. They're not who here is taking the time to learn about this story about how citizens in Wisconsin are overcoming their partisan labels around a higher order agenda that's about making our system work better. They're not. Mm -hmm. So whose Mm -hmm. responsibility is it to elevate these stories into our national conversation? It's us. Yeah. We're doing this. It's so powerful because I will say that the experience that you talked about with this woman at this rally I mean, I see this on this podcast itself. The con- every- the one thing that I've seen that unites everybody from like Andrew Yang to Vivek Ramaswamy to Marianne Williamson to Joe Kennedy, who was on last week right before you, to you, you know, is is this question of trust. And it's a question in some ways almost links back to the culture stuff because it's almost like you're trying to bridge a divide without saying bridging a divide. I feel like one of the most powerful themes in this conversation is that maybe the most powerful way to bring people together is to actually not talk about bring people together. Yeah. Maybe it's to talk about an issue or talk about a celebrity or talk about the fact that probably, you know, the reason why a, a Democrat and Republican both go to a Taylor Swift concert is because they trust her to give good entertainment and they believe in her brand. In That's your right. case, this woman believed in you. Yeah, hmm. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I mean, look, um, It's about finding that common point of connection. And, you know, I think one reason why um, Future Caucus has been really successful over the years and bringing together this eclectic, um, unlikely group of legislators is because it wasn't like we're beating them over the head with bipartisanship and, and bridge building. For some people, that's attractive. I think for others, it's the idea of affiliating as a generational cohort, And that became the point of of common interest. So I think culture is a huge opportunity here to find those common cultural touchstones and do so in a way that 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 inspires belief, that inspires, um, you know, a, a, a better kind of conversation. And most importantly, that truly sees the complexity of people in America and the nuance. And and that's what humanizing people does. 
I think our politics today is so dehumanizing because of how the political industrial complex makes its money and slices and dices us into these different groups. Um, I think through storytelling, we have the power to um, to really elevate the kind of stories that I saw in Wisconsin and in communities across the country that I've, I've worked in over the last 10 years um, and hmm. and help people see that, you know, there's a lot more to the story than we're seeing right now in the media. Um, and there's a, and as a result, there is a Brit, there's a, there is a person to build a bridge to. I think if you don't believe there's a place to build a bridge to, you don't think it's possible, but there you can, but the stories are the ones that really help you believe that's possible. Have you heard of the new civil war movie that's coming out this summer? Yeah. Yeah. The new one coming from a 24. I'm uh, very interested yeah. to see uh, where that one lands. You know, I had this, I had this interesting idea. And the, re- the reason why I bring it up is because again, there's this rapid and vast dichotomy between, I think the message that you just delivered, which some people describe as is hopeful and the reality that a lot of people are confronted with in the media and, and everywhere they go. And I, I bring up that movie because in some ways I know that a lot of people are going to watch that movie and think that it's, it's, it's actually possible, right? That that yeah. maybe a civil war is possible, right? Right now there's a, there's a border crisis happening. And if you go on X and, and want to lose some brain cells and you go through the, the threads that are happening right now, uh, people are actively talking about the fact that Texas is going to secede from the union because of the border policy. And I guess, my rant here has nothing to do with asking you a specific question, but more throwing out a gauntlet of how do you navigate this world of, of, of reality that you're seeing on the ground when you're running these campaigns and when you're talking to bipartisan state lawmakers and you're working with industry professionals in Hollywood, but then the media narrative, which is so different, how do you battle this disconnect between narrative and reality? That's been a ongoing issue that I've been thinking a lot about. And I think it's what moved me into the culture change space. I think, um, you know, when you work in the solutions space, um, you know, you can, you naturally are going to be more hopeful because you are directly exposed to leaders and stories and ideas that are working to what you are. If you're not in that space and you only passively basically consume what the media algorithms want us to consume, well, you're going to be very pessimistic about the future of America. Um, And on top of that, because the media doesn't really cover why, for example, you know, we're, we're in this presidential primary process. They don't talk about how narrow of a slice. It's like less than 1% of Americans in the primaries are determining who our general election candidates are mm-hmm. for president. They don't talk about that. And so as a result, as the average American, you're seeing all these reasons to be pessimistic and you don't know the systems that play behind the scenes that are causing this dysfunction mm-hmm. as well. So you throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm either going to tune out or I'm going to tune in and be very, very angry. Um, and that anger, by the way, is is rightly um, justified. So I think we have to close this gap. And I think the number one way you close that gap is by telling the stories that people like you and I get to see on a daily basis. Um, mm. And I think our campaign for the Senate helped to expose so many people across the state of Wisconsin to those stories and to those ideas because they're not hearing it from any other source. And so we got to find those platforms um, where you can reach more people, not just those that are in the, what I've heard described as the democracy of 1 million, uh, but really uh, beyond that. And my brown. Yeah. No, no, no. I was just going to say the the 1 million democracy nerds, the, 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 the hopeful Millie, um, yeah, yeah. you were, you were, you were going to go to your barometer, but I just want to preempt that with, with a question I had on Ben Recchi, um, who directed the United States of America and he, which featured a big part of your story. And the, the, the cause of actually that conversation was actually Ben taught was, was talking about actually the fact that he was relatively disappointed with 
how the movie got taken up that he wanted he thought that it was a story that had to be told and he was disappointed that it didn't uptick to the extent that he wanted it to and i i give you this context because in some ways these stories have to be told but in other ways we have to figure out a way to tell these stories in punchy impactful ways and so i guess what would your advice be you know, in trying to think about how to tell these stories so that they're not just like positive, feel good tabloids, but they actually reach people where they are and they tap people's frustrations. Well, the reunited States, I think was a great milestone for storytelling in that it was the first major documentary to tell mm -hmm. the stories of political bridge builders who are on the front lines. And what does that human experience look like and because pbs picked it up i could definitely sense that it did reach kind of beyond uh just the the usual suspects definitely i definitely reached beyond the choir it yeah it did, did reach that. beyond the choir i mean i was um knocking on doors in wisconsin i would knock on people's doors who opened it and said wait you're the guy from the documentary and so it did it did reach beyond the choir but the deeper point is overcoming the narrative that people who are good bridge builders uh, don't like conflict. I mean, we want to embrace the, 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 the exchange of ideas in America. And so a lot of the TV and film projects that, that we're working on with bridge entertainment labs um, really in some ways, again, some of them are not political at all. And to your earlier point about Taylor Swift and other cultural things, it kind of invites people in a different way. But for even the ones that are political in nature, um, it's not like a kumbaya story where everyone's getting along. You know, when you're mm -hmm. navigating these divides, it is a deeply personal and emotional and human experience. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be an experience that most Americans are, are facing right now as well. And so I think it's overcoming this notion that there's no conflict and uh, there's no drama. But instead, it's the exact opposite. You're you're embracing the conflict. There is a lot of drama. And um, and so I think that it's we need the stories coming from our space to really hone in on that and not just paper over or whitewash, you know, some of the real issues that are um, at play. And so I think the United it, States definitely got to a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, what, what's pretty powerful about what you're saying is trying to understand how to merge the the basic instincts of human nature, which is wanting to see conflict and wanting to see the vulnerability that exists behind a story with the fact that bridging in some ways is actually deeply vulnerable, very difficult, oftentimes overcoming deep conflict experience. And you're right. I think the United States was a huge step forward in that direction. And the question becomes, how do you get everybody to watch something like that? Because I think that if everybody saw something like that, it would be really powerful. Right. And and the question becomes, how do you elevate that? I want to shift this finally to more personal direction. I, I wanted to ask you this question for a while. You founded a nonprofit, which is, is pretty successful. And now our mutual friend Layla Zdane does an amazing job running it called formerly Millennial Action Project, now the Future Caucus. You then jumped in and threw your hat into the ring, ran for Senate with again, relatively little name ID, which is a very difficult and courageous thing to do. And you did a lot to understand how this message operates in the state of Wisconsin. And now you're on Bridge Entertainment Labs and you're thinking about merging culture with bridging and thinking about how to advocate for this work in that way. Um, I'm not going to ask you what is your favorite, but what I am curious about is out of those different experiences, what would your advice be to somebody that's listening to this and is curious about how to chart their career path or even more simply, how, how to chart their understanding of bridging in their life. What would your advice be given sort of those three experiences? Well, as we both know, the path uh, of starting a nonprofit and getting into democracy work or bridge building or anything of this sort uh, is not the pre-prescribed career track of immigrant parents. That's not going to be something that's on the top of their list. Your parents uh, had that uh, problem with that too? Yeah. It wasn't just I mean, mine? <laughs> no, I think, I mean, look, I think a lot of people can relate to that where they have a passion, yeah. but they're not sure they could actually pursue it for a number of real reasons. And 
I'm a strong believer that the the wisdom of the alchemist, which is my favorite novel, is real, which is when you walk in your purpose, the universe starts to conspire for your success. But to find that purpose, it requires a leap of faith. And so if you're just going down the easy and convenient route, the one that feels comfortable, it's probably not going to be your true calling. Um, pursuing your true calling is one that's deeply difficult. Um, one, the kind of path where you're wondering whether or not it's actually going to work out. It's about embracing that discomfort, but there is a larger force out there that I believe that helps sort of, um, bring the right people or the right opportunities, uh, to you, uh, when you really need them. And so for people who are thinking about taking that leap of faith, I do think it's really important to do so in a considerate and thoughtful uh, kind of way. And the other wisdom I got from a mentor early on was if you think someone ought to do something, that person's probably you. And that was a dangerous, in a good way, uh, kind of uh, uh, wisdom that that I received. And, you know, so this journey is is certainly not easy, but I think it ultimately is, is very fulfilling. And, um, you know, to be frank, after the Senate campaign, I was not planning on jumping into um, sort of looking to climb the mountain one more time um, because, you know, I've, I've, in, I didn't just run the literal race. I've run the figurative race a uh, number of times before that. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, I feel called to this mission and I do truly believe that culture change is the next frontier. And, um, and so that, you know, and, and the right opportunity came up at the right time. So that's why I jumped in and I've had many of those synchronicities, coincidences, moments that, you know, were kind of, um, I would say, help make me feel more confident that this is definitely the right path, um, the right path to go on. So um, I think it's also really important to, you know, not just take the leap of faith and you have the vision and you're building something new, but to also build a great team that can help you execute. Uh, because another one of my favorite sayings is from Einstein, which is uh, vision without execution is hallucination. And so I've met lots of people over the years who have great ideas. Um, and frankly, I met a lot of them when I was getting millennial, then millennial action project off the ground. Very few of those organizations are in existence, much less thriving right now. And, and I think it's because the, the hard questions around strategy, the hard task of building a great team, I I strongly believe those things end up being really important. And the most important determinant, I think, of any organization succeeding is having a great culture, you know, having a culture that people uh, buy into. And those elements, I think, are all really important on the execution side. So have the courage to do what you think should be there in, in the world, uh, and then build a great team around it. I think that's kind of the, the secret sauce right there. In some ways you've actually walked yourself into the last question that I always spring as a surprise to everybody. Um, the audience is very aware of the question, but the guests are never aware of the question, which is people and asking about people's purpose, because part of the reason why we've turned this, the hopeful majority is because the idea is that I mean, to your to your alchemist quote and to your Einstein quote, that if you get an understanding of what your calling is, everywhere your purpose is, you have a path, and and in some ways it's incredibly liberating. And I think you've touched on this a little bit, but if I were to officially ask you, what would you define as your calling? I I would say my calling um, is to help people see the humanity in each other, and the reason why I feel called to that is because I was forced to figure that out in my upbringing, in my environment growing up in Wisconsin. And in each of those moments where I felt like we were able to see the humanity in each other, again, whether that was through music, through culture, through politics, I felt like I was seeing an expression of American democracy at its best. And that's a really special thing. And when you start to read about human history and the you know, him, human civilization. And 
you, you realize that those types of moments and those types of stories are so rare that they're almost impossible. And so this kind of aspiration we have in America, that's what made me really passionate about it, that it is possible, um, you know, to build community in Brookfield, Wisconsin, uh, despite being a first generation American with parents from India and, and to do so and feel like you're kind of part of the larger whole and that, you know, that, that, process of feeling like you're part of the longer larger whole um that you belong allows you um to come up with better ideas not just for yourself but for the whole community there's more that you could do together and um and so i think i feel really um yeah i feel called to do that again originally it's through music and then unexpectedly became a political mission and now it's a culture and storytelling mission um I think all of those things just kind of weave together this theme of um, seeing the humanity, finding, not just seeing, because this is an active trait. I don't think you can do this work passively. It's finding the humanity in each other. And um, as I've said over the years, it's about finding the jazz um, in our democracy. It's a jazz-like process. And, and I often say, um, you don't need to be a jazz musician to play like a jazz artist. And, um, and so I think approaching kind of creating that ethos, um, is, is my calling. Well, if, if there's nothing that you've learned from this episode, the one thing you know, is that there's a town called Brookfield, Wisconsin and, <laughs> and, uh, Steven, uh, persevered through music to bridge some massive divides. I, I appreciate you coming on the hopeful majority. And more than that, I think when you talk about your calling and when you talk about the purpose I know that that's something that people that are listening to this right now can relate to because ultimately our objective is really to empower folks to take action in their own lives. And, and so I appreciate the example that you've set and I, and I'm deeply grateful for all the work that, that you do. Well, thank you, Manu. And uh, as you know, I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful for just the passion that you approach this work with. I still remember meeting you when you were a student in college and uh, you had a great idea mm -hmm. that you were in the process of, uh, bringing to life. And, you know, you incorporate a lot of the elements that I was talking about. Um, you've built great teams, you've got a great vision, um, and you br brought a lot of people around um, your mission of, of Bridge USA. And now you're bringing it to larger platforms with this podcast. So you're doing it, man. And uh, I'm I'm really proud to see how far you've come. And, and I know you're just getting started. It means a lot to me. And thank you for reifying the stereotype of bridge builders that we're just feel good, kumbaya artists. I You have no idea how much that 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 means to me. But in all seriousness, I think it's just, yeah, there's there's a lot of work to happen. And, and again, I know that part of the reason why I wanted to have a conversation with you was because when you talk about the culture and the purpose and you talk about building great teams, I think one is it's important for people to say, see that it's doable, that they can do it themselves. And two is that bridging doesn't just have to be about politics. There's so much more there. So I appreciate you. And thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for Steven to come on. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you listening because remember you as the listener as Steven in that conversation saying have the power to act. We all do because it's about finding our calling and aligning our life with our calling. And in often ways, when we talk about bridge building, it's about thinking about how we make it relevant to the people, how we make it resonate. And so I'm incredibly grateful to Steven's time. Remember every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, leave a like on YouTube, subscribe, leave a review on, on Spotify, Apple, all of it matters. And see how I just tripped over that? It's because we got a hopeful majority to build every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, you say it with me. We've got to build this because we have to fight outrage, build nuance. Thank you, Stephen, for coming on and I'll see you next week.